please stand if you're able um, for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is found in the Gospel of John, second chapter. Um, it is found on page 887 in your pew Bibles. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there, was, there were six stone water jugs there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. A number of years ago, my wife built a friendship with a woman who was critical of Christianity. <clears throat> she felt that Christianity was confining, legalistic, critical, self-aggrandizing, and judgmental, and joyless. And that's because of the Christians she knew. And yet she was still open to Christianity learn a little bit more about it. So my wife knew that she couldn't just dismiss this woman's experiences with her friends. And so she thought, let me help her see the real Jesus. And so she led her in a Bible study going through the different stories about Jesus. And as that woman saw Jesus, she ended up realizing that Christianity was the exact opposite of what she had originally thought. She accepted Jesus Christ today. She is a vibrant Christian engaged in a dynamic and risky ministry to the dancers at men's clubs. She was transformed because she saw Jesus. In some ways, that's exactly what Brandon has been doing in this sermon series looking at the heart of Jesus Christ. As we look at the various dimensions of Christ's love, this truth about Christ begins to deconstruct the false views of Christ and Christianity. And this morning's passage continues that and perhaps might be the, the most powerful of all passages in deconstructing mistaken views of Christianity. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, none of us have it truly right. 
But as we go into the scripture, as your spirit speaks the truth of your word, there becomes greater clarity, greater understanding, and a greater connection with truth. I pray that this sermon would help dispel misconceptions of who Jesus is in our own lives and in the lives of everyone who we can talk to and share uh, this message and the message of who Jesus Christ is and the dimensions of his love. Amen. <clears throat> Two nights ago, I was watching the news and I saw this interview with the uh, lead guitarist of a pretty infamous metal rock band. And uh, he talked about his journey as an iconic musician and who aimlessly pursued life through money, drugs, and sex. And how he, he related that his dream had turned into a nightmare. And he said, I lived everything. I had this dream, and it didn't involve drugs and just treating women like objects year after year. I couldn't stop being bad to my body. I was like an animal. Christianity didn't seem like an option to him because he saw it as very unattractive. But then something happened, and the guitarist captured it in this way. Words can't express how lost I was. Being a multimillionaire, not being able to find the meaning of life, I didn't like the religious aspect of Christianity and hearing about it, but Christ, the indwelling Christ, changed everything for me. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. God is so real. He's not some religious guy in the sky. There's two aspects of this interview that really connect with this morning's message. The first is, he was someone who was turned off by religion, turned off by Christianity, because he was mistaken about it. He thought it was confining. He thought it was joyless. And this miracle of Jesus is done in a culture where the religious leaders had turned God's way into a, a religion that was very confining, very joyless, very legalistic. And Jesus steps on the scene with this miracle that breaks through that. The second is, when he captured the true Jesus, he realized everything changed. And that's what we see in, in this first miracle. Uh, this morning what we'll do is we'll try to unpack the meaning of it by first looking at the fact that this miracle is a sign, a sign that points to what Jesus' coming ministry is going to be all about. And so then we'll look at what, what is the nature of that ministry? What has he come to bring us? And then what are the provisions that Jesus brings us that really fulfills the nature of his ministry, and then ultimately, what, what does it cost for this ministry to become a reality in the lives of people? So first, the sign. Then we look at verse 11 of chapter 2. 
And John writes, this the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the first sign. Now, what does a sign do? Signs point to something bigger than themselves. They're giving an explanation. They tell you the meaning of something. So if you're driving down the road and you see this six-sided red sign with some words on it, you know that the government says, you are supposed to stop right here. Or if you go a little further and you see this squiggly line, you know that up ahead there are these curves that you better watch out for. Or if you drive further and you see this sign that says, entering Weston, you know that you've, you know where you are. You've actually driven into Weston. Or you go into Boston and cross a building, it says State House. You know, this is the State House. So signs give an explanation. They tell us the meaning of things. And John is very particular about using Jesus' miracles as signs. Whereas the other gospel writers use the words powers and miracles, John loves the word signs. And in each case, he's saying this miracle points to this reality about Jesus. So Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish and he feeds 5,000 and then he explains this sign Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus heals a blind man. Man who could never see, suddenly sees. And John says, this is a sign. Jesus is the light of the world. He calls forth Lazarus from the grave. And we know it's the sign, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so the miracle of turning water into wine is a sign. Because it's the first sign, it's going to tell us about the ministry of Jesus Christ. The word first means the initial one, but it also means foremost. It's the first one that's going to happen. But it's the foremost as well because this miracle is going to describe his ministry in totality. Every other miracle and sign comes underneath this one. Now, think about this. Jesus is coming onto the scene. What miracle is he going to bring? He brings the least significant miracle of all. I mean, if you were blind, would you rather have Jesus give you sight or would you rather have him make your wedding celebration better? If you were dead, would you rather have Jesus raise you from the dead or make sure your wedding feast goes better? and isn't a disaster. I mean, it's very clear that the miracles Jesus does are life-changing. This one seems so insignificant. Now, it was important to that couple, 
because it was an incredible embarrassment and it really brought shame on the family if the, the wine ran out. And it does show us that Jesus cares even for the little things in our lives, but is the first miracle? In fact, uh, Reynolds Price is so unimpressed by his miracle that he says, this is a proof that the story must be true. He writes this in the introduction of his book, The Three Gospels. If you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, you would never, for your inaugural sign, include a miracle ministering to a mere social embarrassment. It's just, you wouldn't make that up. It's so insignificant. But the reason is, it isn't about what Jesus accomplishes. It's about the sign that he's showing us. And so, and we can we further support that by the confusing interaction that Jesus has with his mother. You, know, you notice that? It's a real head-scratcher. As he says, uh, it says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said, yeah, do whatever he says. <laughs> okay. Well, we get the first part, they have no wine. <laughs> but Jesus' response, first of all, he says, woman. Now, the woman is a term of respect. When Jesus looks at his mother from the cross and he's going to provide for her, he says, woman. But it's not the intimate term you would normally use with your own mother. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is making his separation from his mother as he begins the ministry. He's no longer the little boy under the authority of his mother. He is now under the authority of his true father. And so by saying woman, he is making that separation at this point. I am going to follow my father's will. And then he says, what does that have to do with me? And what he means, literally, he's saying, uh, what is this to me and to you? And what he's saying is, what do we have in common about this request or this issue, the fact that they're out of wine? And he's saying that you are thinking of earthly things right now. Can you do something about the wine? I'm on a whole different page than you are. I'm thinking about heavenly things. And so we're seeing this from two completely different vantage points. We have uh, two different agendas here. And Jesus unveils his agenda by his words, my hour has not yet come. Now, the rest of the Gospel of John, when Jesus speaks of his hour, he's speaking of the hour of his death and his glorification on the cross and through the resurrection. So how does that fit in? Well, we need to understand, Mary has one agenda, 
Jesus has another agenda. She has one understanding of what's going on. Jesus has another understanding of what's going on. And Jesus' understanding is the bigger picture of what he has come to accomplish. The very ministry he is about to embark on, it's going to conclude in, it is going to be fulfilled by his death. So that's why he's thinking of it at this point. The mother, his mother gets it to some extent, and she says, okay, Jesus has an agenda, a different one. Jesus has a different understanding. You servants, do whatever he says to do. So this shows us that there's a, a second meaning. That though, though we see this miracle from a human perspective of water becoming wine and now they continue their celebration, Jesus sees it from a completely different perspective. As his first miracle, what he's going to accomplish, it is a sign to tell us all what this upcoming ministry is. And so what is this upcoming ministry? What is the nature of the ministry that Jesus Christ has come to bring us? In short, he comes to bring us celebration. He comes to bring us joy. See, we look at the setting. What, what, what is the setting? It's a celebration. It's a wedding. There's happiness. There's joy. And as they're all together eating and drinking, having this community, all of a sudden something happens where that is all about to stop. When the wine runs out, the embarrassment starts to fall upon the, the, the hosts. The joy will be gone. See, consistently in Jesus' life, he uses parables or predictions that relate to celebrations. He gives the parable of the lost coin. A woman is looking around. She's, she's lost a gold coin, and she turns the light on, and she gets on the floor, and she's looking all over for it. And when she fall, finds that coin, she calls the neighbors, and they have a celebration. The shepherd has a hundred sheep, and he loses one, so he goes out and he searches all over for the sheep, and he finally finds it. He brings home, and what does he do? He has a celebration as he calls his neighbors to celebrate with him. A prodigal son has left his father, gone into a life of debauchery and squalor. But he returns. The father gets his son home. And what does he do? He kills the fattened calf, calls the neighbor, and they have a celebration. And Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal he says, I'm not going to drink again till I drink again in the kingdom, in the tremendous celebration we're going to have at that time. You see, Christianity is about celebration. In those parables, the celebration is the celebration of the Father. 
And I think we need to realize that Jesus' ministry isn't simply about us. It's about what God has come. It's about the glory of God. It's about the, the celebration that's going on in the heart of God as Jesus moves forward touching the lives of people in so many different ways. God rejoices. It's uh, later, early, uh, later in the gospel, earlier in the gospels, <laughs> the writer talks about there is joy in the presence of angels when a person is converted. We often think the angels are rejoicing, maybe they are, but the verse is, there's joy in the presence. Who's in the presence of the angels? Is God the Father. And Jesus' heart is tied to God the Father. He wants to bring celebration to God and to us. We see that this is the theme by the, the, the type of miracle it is. Jesus turns water into wine. What does wine symbolize? Wine symbolizes joy. Psalm 104.15. And what, you want wine to gladden your heart. And there's a number of verses that talk about wine gladdening the heart. And Jesus doesn't want to just provide a few more bottles of wine either. What he provides is he provides lavishly says there are six jars of water, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So do the math. Uh, anybody can multiply six times 20. Okay, 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's what Jesus' ministry is about. It isn't about just, just meeting the needs, squeaking by. It's He lavishly provides. And then as the Master of Ceremony says at the end, this was the best wine of all. We thought you had good wine, but this is the best. Jesus provides the best wine. You see, Jesus' ministry is not joyless. It is joy-filled. That's what he wants to bring us. And it's because that's always been in the heart of Christ, of the Son of God. We can go back into eternity past, which John 17 gives us a peek into the past. And we see that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have an eternal relationship of complete selfless love for one another and champion each other, glorifying one another and in that relationship, they have complete and total perfect joy. God created us to enter into that experience that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have to receive his love, to receive his glory, to return and love him and glorify him, and in that, we end up having perfect joy. And so Jesus symbolizes that in this sign. That's the nature of his ministry. 
It is so the opposite of what so many people think Christianity is. And so how, how does this joy come to us? What is the provision of Jesus's ministry? Well, first, he accepts us. We're like the prodigal son, right? Where we've left, we've strayed, we've, we've taken what God has given us to be used in a special way for God, and we've spent it on ourselves, we've turned our back on the Father, and the result is we've turned, gone into meaningless lives where we struggle to find any sense of significance. Uh, we get twisted identities, and we've pushed God away. Some people feeling, I'm so far from God, he could never forgive me. But when the prodigal returns, the response of the father is to run to him, to embrace him completely, and to throw a party. If you were that prodigal son, if you had that experience and you came back and got that response from the father, what would you be feeling? There's joy because God accepts us in the depths of our sin and rebellion. He loves us so much, he welcomes us back when we turn to him. Second, Jesus replaces the legalism, the type of confining religion of the day with grace and truth. He's already stated this, and, and it was read this morning in John chapter 1. Moses brought the law. Jesus brings grace and truth. And, but how do we see that in this passage? Well, what are these water jars about? The water jars are for ceremonial cleansing. They're for Jewish purification rites. And what that means is when you walked into and were going to have a meal, you needed to wash your hands, not to get the dirt off them, but to get the dirt of sin off of you. And this is such a tradition among the Jews that when the disciples discovered they didn't wash their hands before they ate, there's all chaos and hell breaks loose about their failure to wash their hands. And so this water represents the old system, the system of the law and the Jewish traditions. Moses brought the law, but Jesus brings grace and truth. Okay. What does he mean that the law becomes grace and truth? Well, think of there's two aspects to the law. One is the animal sacrifices, the special day celebration, day of atonement, the Passover. These were all ways to say this is how your sin has to be forgiven. There has to be a payment. There has to be a sacrifice for your sin to be paid for. Well, what does Jesus bring? He brings grace. You don't pay for your sin. I will pay for your sin 
So your forgiveness, very costly to me, is free to you. That's grace. The second part of the law is the moral rules of the law, the Ten Commandments and, and other expressions of that ten, the ten Commandments. Jesus brings truth. And what that means is the law, the rules, can be very external to us. They can be, you said I should do this, okay, I do this. I'm supposed to wash my hands, I'll wash my hands. But Jesus wants the law inside of us. And that's a promise of the new covenant. The Spirit will write the law in our hearts. Jesus wants the truth that undergirds all of the law to be the reality in our hearts. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have this incredible external righteousness. But though they're whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, they're full of dead men's bones on the inside. He said, I'm after your heart. You say that you shall not commit murder. I say, whoever murders... Oh, you say, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I'm talking about what's going on in your heart. And after that, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say today, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Here, this is what I'm after. I want you to have such a connection to God that you have his truth in your heart and it's changing and working in your heart. And you know what happens? Is instead of the laws being things that are burdens to us, they actually become expressions of who we are. Another way to say that is if we unite with God and we feel with God, the truth that undergirds his commandments, then we will feel about those commandments the way God himself does. They're no longer a burden, but they're truly expressions of us. So Jesus offers us acceptance by the Father, he changes the whole understanding of the law. And he offers an intimate, personal relationship with himself. Where do we get this? Well, this miracle happens at a wedding. What's a wedding about? A man marries a woman. They become one. They live a lifelong, intimate relationship ever growing more and more in love with each other. That's the way marriage is intended. Now, that might seem like we're pushing the passage a little too far here, but again, that is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament. John the Baptist says, talking about Jesus, 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bride who stands and hears him greatly rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. And John says this because a lot of people thought he would be jealous of Jesus because jealous, Jesus was getting more followers. And he's saying, hey, I'm just, I'm the best man. And I'm excited for my friend to be in the place of honor as the bridegroom. He said, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He sees Jesus as the bridegroom. Similarly, in John 3.29, Jesus says, uh, Dude, now it is John 3.29, excuse me, okay. Uh, in Matthew 9.15 and 16, Jesus, when he's asked about why his disciples don't fast, he says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? John later describes the wedding banquet of Jesus in, in the church in the book of Revelation. The Lord's Supper anticipates the marriage of the Lamb. Paul in Ephesians talks about Jesus as the husband, the church as the bride. This theme is throughout scripture. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. That's what Jesus offers us. That type of intimacy with God, that type of intimacy with him, an intimacy that leads to great joy. Signs point to Jesus' ministry. It's proclaiming and announcing what he's come to bring. And we see the nature of that ministry is celebration and joy. And we can have that because we are accepted. We are loved. We are transformed. We are given a new heart that beats with God's moral standards. What's the cost? Well, at a wedding in the culture, the bridegroom was responsible for the wedding. Jesus is responsible for paying the price for the ministry he brings us. We've already seen this when he says, it's not my hour. He knows what it's going to cost him to turn water into wine. It's going to cost him his life. And he's willing to pay that price, and he pays that price on the cross. And we see some dynamics that are necessary for us to understand, to enter into that ministry, that joy of Jesus Christ. We, we see it in this passage. Let's go back to the, well, let's lay it out first. To enter into the joy that Christ offers us, we need to accept Christ as our Savior. 
In order to accept Christ as our Savior, we have to believe we need a Savior. And this passage sets that up. First, again, we go back to this ceremonial cleansing water. Why did the Jewish people feel they needed to wash their hands before the meal? It's because they knew they had sin and that they needed cleansing of their sin. If they didn't realize they had sin, they, they wouldn't need a savior. There's nothing to save you from. But they knew there was sin. And they needed to be cleansed from that sin. That's what we need to realize. If we're going to accept a savior, we need to realize we have sin. That sin is so bad that we are separated from a holy, perfect, loving, just God. Then it also says, we are out of wine. And what that says is, we can't pay for it. Jesus is going to pay for our wine with his wine. See, there's, there's two meanings of wine in scripture. One is celebration. The other is the death. Jesus says, the Lord's table, this is the cup of the new covenant shed for the remission of your sins. And so they are out of wine. They cannot earn their own forgiveness. You see, we can believe we're sinners, but if we think I'm a sinner, I'm separated from God, but I can make up for that. If I go to church, if I'm good to people, if I'm kind, if I'm philanthropic, if I try to live a moral life, I can, I can make up for it. If you believe that, that you've sinned, but you can make up for it, you, you don't see a need for a savior. And this passage shows you, they, they understand, I need a cleansing. They probably don't understand. A lot of people don't understand, especially religious people, don't understand they're out of wine. No, there's nothing we can do to make up for our sin. But Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's why he had to come, so he could make that payment for us. Where do you stand? Do you believe you've sinned and you need a Savior? Do you understand that you aren't your own Savior? You can't save yourself? Then you know you need a Savior. And Jesus proclaims, I am that Savior. His hour did come. But you know, our joy in what God has done for us really is an expression of how much, what we feel we're saved from. If, uh, if I owe somebody $5 and they've they pay the $5 because the, the library wasn't going to give me any more books, and so he saves me to be able to get more books. I'd be grateful. If I'm going across the street and somebody pushes me out of the way and gives their life for me, but I'm, I, 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 I was about to be killed, but now I'm alive, I will have a whole different feeling of what that means to me. And so until we understand how deep and horrific our sin is, 
we're not going to understand how beautiful and wonderful salvation is. Chuck Colson tells a story about uh, a time when Adolf Eichmann was on trial. <clears throat> he writes this. In 1960, Israeli undercover agents orchestrated the daring kidnapping of one of the worst of the Holocaust masterminds, Adolf Eichmann. After ca capturing him in his South American hideout, they transported him to Israel to stand trial. Their prosecutors called a string of former concentration camp prisoners and witnesses. One was a small haggard man named Yahil Denor who had miraculously escaped death in Auschwitz. On his day to testify, Deneur entered the courtroom and stared at the man in the bulletproof glass, excuse me, the bulletproof glass booth. The man who had murdered Deneur's friends, personally executed a number of Jewish people, and presided over the slaughter of millions more. As the eyes of the two men met, victim and murderous tyrant, the courtroom fell silent, filled with the tension of the confrontation, but no one was prepared for what happened next. Yahil Denor began to shout and sob, collapsing to the floor. Was he overcome by hatred, by the horrifying memories, by the evil incarnate in Eichmann's face? No. As he later explained in a riveting 60 Minutes interview, it was become, Eichmann was not the demonic personification of evil Deneur had expected. Rather, he was an ordinary man, just like anyone else. And in that one instant, Deneur came to the stunning realization that sin and evil are the human condition. I was afraid about myself, Deneur said. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like him. Deneur's remarkable statements caused Michael Wallace to turn the camera and ask the audience the most painful of all questions. How was it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was he a monster, a madman, or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? Yahil Deneur's shocking conclusion, Eichmann is in all of us. When we realize that, we realize what Christ has paid for we realize the joy of that salvation. The guitarist who had rejected Christianity until he met the real Jesus uh, wrote a song called Washed in the Blood and he says, come to me, you're forgiven now. You're washed by blood. From deep inside, you're not a prisoner of your old life washed by blood. A brand new start. It's time that I rebuild your heart. There shall be death nor, there shall no more <clears throat> be death nor sorrow nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. You're washed by blood from deep inside. You're not a prisoner of your old life. Come fly with me. You know I love you. She says, from Christ's perspective. Christ comes to transform us, to bring us new wine at the cost of his wine.
his life. Our Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that you, you have so much expression of yourself, your desire for us, your love for us, and what you've accomplished for us. I know, Lord, we don't regularly walk around with the joy that we should have. I do pray that the words this morning, your spirit might use in my life and in each of our lives to bring us a restored joy in our hearts that resonates into a lost world so that when they see Christians, they'll draw the right conclusion about Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of joy. Amen.